We have been starting every sermon so far in this series with the story of somebody and their uh, encounter with Jesus. We're going to do the same this week. I just want you to think about the difference in someone's life from before they knew Jesus to after they know Jesus. It is often dramatic, and I think as you look over the span of years, it becomes even more so. Such an amazing, amazing salvation that we've been given. And today, to tell us more about that amazing salvation is uh, Lindsay Blackstone. She's uh, with child, so be nice to her. She's emotional. Don't make her cry. I'm more nauseous than emotional, so I may spew. <laughs> like a Gallagher show. Anyone? Gallagher. Thank you. Um, I'm Lindsay. I, um, yeah, when Mike asked me to chat, I realized um, after about six years of going to SCUM, I've never shared my story of coming to know Jesus. Talked about various different things, parenting, India, marriage, but never have I spoken about meeting Jesus. So I'm excited and a little nervous. Um, I was raised in suburban Cincinnati, Ohio. I lived with my mother, father, and older brother. We kind of had the picture-perfect big suburban house, Basset Hound, two children, um, went to church on Sunday. I mean, everything looked pretty good. Um, but unfortunately, um, and many people can relate, um, inside the home was a bit difficult. My parents um, had a really hard time with marriage. Specifically, my mother had a pretty difficult time. Um, and she had some interesting things from her past. Um, so not to go into the details, but... Um, Things were really hard for her, and therefore, it was kind of hard for us children growing up. Um, yeah, as a, as a tiny person, it was a little bit confusing dealing with yelling and um, fighting and things like that all the time. Um, and actually, uh, probably many people can relate, at eight years old, my parents got divorced. But what is a little bit different is at nine, they remarried each other. And then at nine and a half, they divorced each other again. So it was a little strange and a little confusing for a little person. Um, I actually remember being sat on the couch by my parents after the first divorce saying, we're going to get remarried again. And I remember I was supposed to be excited about it, but I was really pissed. And I didn't want them to because I didn't want them to yell. And as a small kid, I understanding that. It's too much for an eight-year-old to grasp. But um, looking back on it now and being married, I, I completely understand that marriage is hard and wanting to fix something that was broken. But, yeah, that year and a half was kind of a crazy whirlwind of back and forth and courts and um, obviously a lot of heartache from both my parents, my brother and I. 
So, yeah, after the second divorce, a few years later, my dad remarried, um, a wife with three children. And obviously that was pretty difficult for my mother as well. Um, things kind of grew a bit worse. Um, and, and it was just, it was, it was really hard. So um, uh, about the age of 12, which is the court of Ohio determines that's the age when a child can decide for themselves what's best, I guess. And so at 12, I ended up moving in with my father for the vast majority of um, the rest of my childhood. But there was a lot of damage kind of already done by that point. Um, so yeah, coming to teenage years, what does a low self-esteem, insecure girl do? She drinks and hangs out with boys. Um, so yeah, every weekend was revolved around drinking and partying. That's just what it was. Um, that followed me into college, which obviously got a lot worse because there's no curfews, there's no rules, and drinking was four to five nights a week. And by drinking, I mean completely blacking out. Um, yeah, so um, I think back of the situations I would put myself in, the dangers I put myself in, the things I allowed to be done to me, the things that I didn't allow to be done to me. Um, and I look back on that now, and I can't help but praise the Lord because we probably should be in prison or dead at this point, and I'm not. Um, regardless of the fact that I ignored Jesus, he was still there through that. So yeah, um, as you could imagine, the lifestyle of drinking four to five nights a week could only go so far mentally, emotionally, physically before it weighs on you. So um, it came out in me with drunken crying. So <laughs> that's the cool partying girl that cries in the corner. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was literally, I wouldn't let myself feel, but then when you're not in control, that's when things come out. And it was loneliness, insecurity, sadness, um, a lot of things. So yeah, um, a lot of my friends that I would party with didn't really want to hang out with me because I would get drunk and cry. I mean, who would want to hang out with that girl? So I spent a lot of time alone. Um, and honestly, I spent a lot of time waking up in strange men's homes because it was a way to get attention and to get affection and it was incredibly miserable. So one night sophomore year of college, um, some new girls that I'd met, didn't know about my crying, said, let's go to a frat party. Um, <laughs> and so, and so um, another one of their friends was wanting to go, but she had a late class, and they didn't want to wait for her. They just told her to walk by herself at night on a college campus to a frat party. Super safe, great friends. So I barely knew her, but I said, you know what, I'll hang back um, and wait and walk with you. Um, so around 9 p.m., I showed up at her dorm with a case of Natty Light. And <laughs> how many times is Natty Light in someone's testimony? <laughs> so we decided to pregame before the party. And, um, yeah, like a half a dozen beers in, we started finding ourselves actually talking about real things, talking about our pasts and life and dreams and hopes and actually having a real conversation. And I literally, that's the first time I've probably had a conversation like that 
in my 19 years of life at that point. Um, turns out that her father was a youth pastor. My dad was an elder at church. We were raised in this, but we were both living this ridiculously lonely lifestyle. We kind of kept talking about how there's got to be something more than terrible friendships, drunkenness, um, all of that. And a few years later, both extremely inebriated, we decided we needed Jesus. That was the answer. Um, so in Gamertzfelder dorm at Ohio University's campus, this girl Allison and I gave our lives to Jesus, each with probably about six beers in us. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, needless to say, we didn't make it to the party, um, we s- <laughs> which actually would have probably been pretty interesting. Um, we we stayed up that late that night talking about what do we do. We literally had no idea. How do we be a Christian? I think those kids that double dutch on Fridays are Christians. Like, turns out they were young lifers, um, so they were Christians. But we were just trying to come up with, like, what do we do now? And so we were so excited, and one of her... <laughs> One of her um, classmates was a Christian, and so she asked him, like, hey, I got this friend, what do we do? And so he was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a college ministry. And so he took us to that meeting there on a Thursday, about 400 college students all in a lecture hall. And I have never felt so overwhelmed, so out of place, so awkward, and almost like hiding, like they were going to find out like who I was and kick me out of this place. Um, but I kept going because my friend, she was just in the same boat as I was. So we went together to, to this meeting. And um, I'll never forget the first couple weeks noticing this guy, one of the guys up front, good-looking, Christian, confident, funny. People wanted to be like him. And he was leading this, all the group. I remember going, Lauren, I'm never going to deserve a man like that, but at least I get to hang out with men like this. And that sounds like a really bad thing to think. But for me, it was kind of big because it was the first time that I'd literally been around men that just wanted to get to know me or talk or not have some ulterior motive. But as you could tell from that statement, I was so pretty um, embarrassed about myself, down on myself. Um, but in the midst of those, the feeling of out of place, I still kept going. I went to, eventually to a Bible study, went to retreats. Um, my friend Allison and I, we kind of dove into this. And through many years of being a part of this Christian community, I was loved on, unlike I've ever been loved on before. Um, the Lord, through these friendships and through his word, showed me that I was a new creation and that the old was gone and that what I was ashamed about, what I was embarrassed about, what I had done in the past, the damaged, worthless girl that I was, is gone and that I was a daughter of Christ. Um, I often say the phrase to my husband or to others, well, if Saul could become Paul. And basically what I mean is if um, an avid persecutor of the Christian faith could become one of the foremost preachers of the gospel, then the Lord can do anything with anybody. Um, And Mike talked about it a little bit before I got up, but, I mean, to me, that is the wonderment of, of Christ and the gospel and that he has given us his son, Jesus, to pay for our sins and that 
our past, our junk, our current thought, everything doesn't matter, that through him we can become a new creation. And those that knew us before to know us now can't help but be amazed that something has happened to make you how you are now. And um, when Mike asked me to share this, I definitely had that tinge of embarrassment, guilt, and shame come back that I'm going to stand before my community and say these things. But that tinge of embarrassment is squashed by the fact that uh, the Lord has given me so much grace. And then I can stand here and I can share this with confidence that that's not me anymore. That's a story. Um, And this is who I am now. And so um, I'll leave you with one final instance of the wonderment of the Lord and his plans. Uh, The girl Allison that I talked about, um, she's been one of my closest friends for 10 years. We were roommates. We were both each other's maid of honors in our wedding. She loves the Lord, has two children, doing ministry in Ohio. And that uh, studly man that was up in front of Campus Crusade, ladies and gentlemen, Todd Blackstone. My husband. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I ended up marrying him. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the Lord's incredible and did things in my life that I don't think anyone could have ever predicted. So, thank you. God is so awesome. I mean, really, I mean, the word awesome has been overused in America, but it was originally meant for God. I want you to know that. And that was awesome. So the question tonight, the question I want everybody to ask here is, do I need to be saved? Do I need to be saved? The question is not, do we think we need to be saved? Because you can need to be saved and not know it. Feeling safe is no proof that you are safe. As in the story that just slays me the most from the Boulder County floods in the last several days about four teenage young people who are leaving a birthday party up in the craggy hills of northwest Boulder to go home. One of the girls' moms had actually called earlier and said, are you guys okay? The the, the weather's getting really, really bad. Maybe you should come home. We're okay, Mom. Don't worry. We'll come home later. They get in the car, they start coming in the mountain, the girl driving starts freaking out because of all the, the water rushing down the road and all the rain that's hitting the car. And so uh, they stop and they change drivers and the guy starts driving. And they keep driving until they come to a place where there's been a mudslide and they see a Jeep that's overturned in front of them and they get stuck in the mudslide and there's water coming down and they don't know what to do. Until figuring it's not safe to stay in the car, Wesley and his girlfriend, Wiana, decide to get out of the car. 
as soon as they get out, they're swept away by the water that's coming down the mountain. And so Nelson gets out to try and help them, but he's almost swept away by the torrent of mud and water coming down. He is holding on for his life to the side view mirror of the car, and the force of the water is so great, it rips the side view mirror off. He goes hurtling down and finally manages to grab onto some branches. He tries to scramble up the side of the hill, covered in mud from head to toe. He's having a really, really hard time, but there's another car that's come down behind them. And it's a rescue worker who's off duty, but he sees what's going on. He gets out of his car. He helps Nelson clamber up the hill to safety. They go up to this house they find, and the homeowner says, I've never seen two people more covered in mud than these two when they come up to our house. Then they hear the horn blaring from down below in the road. It's the last girl, Emily, who's stuck in the car. And so the homeowner and the rescuer go down and they manage to get her out. But they couldn't find Wiana or Wesley, who were drowned. Their bodies were found the next day. It was about 11 p.m. when Rihanna replied to her mom last, assuring her that they were getting ready to go home. She felt safe, but she wasn't. You, or the people you know at school, or at work, or at home, or in the neighborhood, may feel totally safe. They may desperately need salvation and not feel in any danger at all. I'm not even talking about enjoying the life that is to come. They don't even understand the joy that awaits them in Christ, the life-changing salvation that can work things in your heart, in your body, in your mind, in your emotions, in your intellect. So let's take a look at what Peter has to say from this letter. He's been talking about salvation the whole chapter so far. This is the fourth sermon in. We're only on verses 10 through 12. This is what Peter says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, the prophets quoted in the synagogues of that day were the same prophets that were quoted in the church. And there was only one difference. And that is that the church understood that many of the prophecies spoke about Jesus as the Messiah. So Peter reminds the church that this talk about salvation is not new, but was spoken of long, long ago. These prophets looked diligently into the things they were being led to write and to say. They were guided, aided, and enabled by the very Spirit of Christ that indwells you when you become a Christian. And they were being pointed to the realities of a suffering Savior, which, trust me, makes no sense. Saviors do not normally suffer. Saviors come riding in on white horses in shining armor to rescue fair maidens. It's always been that way. And this whole idea that a Savior might suffer started in the mind of God. So when you go to the movies and you see the hero who's got to go through all sorts of junk, you'll know it was God's idea first. Jesus said to his disciples once, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Peter is telling us that the prophets did not look into these things that they were given by God for their own benefit. How much about what we do is just for us? One of the things that I've noticed is that the longer I'm in Christ, the less God makes it apparent it's about me. It's about others. It's also apparent to parents. Because when you have a little baby, you begin to get an idea it's not just about you. With the sleepless nights. With the incessant crying. With the, I don't know what to do. How do I make this kid happy? Is he getting enough? Food? Is she getting enough milk? Are her diapers dry? Does he have some kind of, you know, respiratory problem? Or how do I get the snot out of his nose anyway? Like, what do I do? I've never done it with anybody's nose but mine before. So you begin to get an idea. It's not about you. And it continues even when they're in their 20s and 30s. It becomes less and less about you. It used to be that, you know, my kids were, they were Mike and Mary's kids. 
No longer. Now, we are Katina, Sophia, Luke, and Ethan's parents. And that's a good thing. You know, it matures you. It actually makes you the kind of person people tend to like to be around. We don't like to be around people who are stuck on themselves. A little excerpt from Reader's Digest in April 2002. Celebrities tend to misbehave in tiresome and predictable ways. Tantrums, affairs, addictions, and we tend to think they're spoiled. But one psychiatrist, Cornell's Robert B. Millman, says they're not spoiled, they're sick. The affliction is called acquired situational narcissism. Acquired situational narcissism develops when once ordinary people achieve extraordinary success, such as winning an Oscar, being named Rookie of the Year, becoming a very popular musician. This double dose of adulation loosens people's grip on reality, and they become, according to Millman, quote, unbelievably self-involved because of the attention from us. We make it so. So, the prophets were the opposite of that. They endured all sorts of tortures and difficulties, hunger, homelessness, and death because they were bringing the Word of God to us for thousands of years afterwards. So here's the deal. You want to follow Jesus? You will follow Jesus. You will become as selfless as he was because it's not about you. Let's look at what some of the prophets said. Now, there's some Old Testament prophecies pointing towards the coming Messiah. These occurred, some of them, hundreds and hundreds of years before. One prophecy, actually, spoken in the Garden of Eden by the Lord God himself to Adam and Eve. But these prophecies, when you start to put them together into a pattern like a jigsaw puzzle, it begins to form the picture of a person that you wouldn't expect to be the savior of the world. I have been doing research all week. I've heard that there are 500 and some, 600 different prophecies that point to Jesus as the Messiah. All right, I haven't read all those. I'm going to say that maybe some of them are stretching a bit. But Floyd Hamilton wrote there were 332 distinct predictions that were literally fulfilled in Christ. Sixty of those are often called the major prophecies. Included are these, and they're up on the screen. 
The Messiah was to be born at Bethlehem. That's Micah, Old Testament prophet, chapter 5. The Messiah was to be preceded by a messenger. That's talked about in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. The Messiah was to enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. That's in Zechariah chapter 9. The Messiah was to be betrayed by a friend who ate with him. That's Psalm 41. The Messiah was to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's Zechariah 11. And the money was to be thrown into God's house and then used for a potter's field. That's also Zechariah 11. The Messiah was to stand silent before his accusers. That's Isaiah 53. And the Messiah was to die by crucifixion. That's in Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, and Isaiah 53. That's just eight of them. Eight of them. And I think 60 are fairly easy to see. And there are more. Hundreds. So if you take just those eight prophecies concerning the Messiah, a university professor named Peter Stoner wrote his book, Science Speaks, to show that there is more than coincidence to explain how all of these things could be fulfilled by one man. He applied the science of what we know as probability to show that this is miraculous. And when he took all these eight and then did the proper calculations, he had lots of university students working on this with him, he calculated that the odds of this occurring were one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with that many zeros, 17 zeros, to one. Those are the odds of that happening. I mean, you have better odds of winning the lottery than that. When Stoner's calculations were submitted to the American Scientific Affiliation for verification, both the Committee of Review and the Executive Council found them to be, quote, dependable and accurate in regards to the scientific material presented. Now, it doesn't really mean a lot when we look at that kind of a number in terms of Jesus fulfilling eight of the major prophecies. Like, it just seems like, well, that's a really slim chance. Okay, but if, but if I gave you 10 tickets and we marked your name on one ticket, we put those 10 tickets into a hat, shuffled those tickets around, put a blindfold on you, and told you to pick out the ticket with your name on it, what would be the probability of you picking the ticket with your name on it? One in 10. Very good. All right. Let me try and help you understand 10 to the 17th to one odds. If you took that many silver dollars and you spread them across the whole land area of the state of Texas, you would have silver dollars two feet deep all over Texas. You would put your name on one of those silver dollars, mix up the whole mess, 
put a blindfold on you and ask you to go find the one with your name on it. That's one in 10 to the 17th. Yes, that's the odds. So, at the end of all this, Stoner concludes, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting the fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Any man who rejects Christ, any woman who rejects Christ as a son of God, is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's why the prophecies are important. God is desperately trying to show anybody who would pay attention how great a salvation he has planned if you would only open your eyes. Speaking of opening eyes, this whole topic is one that the angels would love to look into. The idea in the Greek is, is that they're kind of like bending over, like peering down, trying to figure it all out. This does not mean they want to but can't. It means that they want to understand it in the sense of outsiders who have no real personal understanding, experience with the drama of sin and redemption. Not one angel could stand up here and tell you a story like Lindsay Blackstone did. Not one angel could explain the love of God and how its life had been transformed by Jesus' presence like Lindsay Blackstone can or like any one of you can who have received so great a salvation. Peter's point is this. If the angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we, who are the beneficiaries of everything that God has done, everything He's planned for thousands of years, how much more should we be grateful and excited, and ecstatic, and dancing, and joyful about what God has done for us. And why should we keep that marvelous news to ourselves? When so many people around us are going home at night and wishing they could have one meaningful conversation, that one person... One man would not look at me like a piece of meat. That one woman would not look at me and judge me for being unattractive. That there might be somebody in the world 
who wanted to know what was going on in here, inside of me, would point me to somebody who could love me more deeply than I've ever been loved before. Because here's the truth. As much as we want to love each other, we can't go as deep as each of us needs to go. I was talking with uh, Amy Lynn before the service today, and she was saying, Jesus Christ is the only one who can dive down the depths of where I've been and who I am. And for that, she is eternally grateful. So these angels were around. They love peering into the salvation so much so that I think they get excited when they're on assignment to help Christians. It's a story about a Scottish missionary to the South Pacific, the New Hebrides Islands. John Patton went there in the mid-1800s to proclaim Christ to the cannibals who inhabited those islands. One night, hostile natives surrounded his mission station, intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. So John Patton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to watch all their would-be attackers leave. It was a year later when the chief of the tribe that had led the attack came to Christ. Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning the house down and killing them the year before. The chief replied in surprise, Who were all those men with you there? Patton knew no men were present, but the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. An amazing, amazing story. Angels long to look into this. Finally, Peter highlights the value of salvation by telling us in verse 12 that the Holy Spirit himself is sent from heaven and has brought us the news of this great salvation through those that he has chosen to preach. Kind of like I'm doing right now. I don't know where you are in terms of the whole salvation story. Maybe you and Jesus are close, doing great. Maybe you've been giving Jesus the Heisman for quite some time, holding him at arm's length, ignoring him. Maybe you've never, ever heard the good news about Jesus and the salvation that he offers before. But I can assure you, it's no accident that you're here and that 
the gospel is being preached to you in a very blatant way. We have a need for salvation. We've got a need for salvation. Even if we don't know we've got a need for salvation. And salvation, Jesus says, is in him alone. Jesus said in John 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, he's recorded as saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Fairly exclusive statement. Almost bordering on megalomania. Right? Who says that? I am the only way to get to God. Because right now, in the USA, we are going more and more toward a pluralistic society that denies the need for salvation. It says basically everybody's born pretty good. And it's society that messes them up. You know, it's the neighbor, or it's the school system, or it's the welfare system, or it's the government, or it's your mom and dad. But basically you're good. And then, you know, you watch the news and am I the only person that's seen that terrible video online where the rebel in Syria cuts open the chest of the Syrian soldier and begins taking chomps out of his heart and liver for the camera? I'm going like, that's just Am I the only one who has friends who have been sexually abused when they were children? Did you hear about that eight-year-old girl in Yemen who got married to a guy in his 40s because that's what they do in Yemen? And the internal injuries that she suffered on her wedding night caused her to die. And I'm supposed to believe that somehow we're basically good people. Look, I believe in marriage, but that is wrong. The typical adage of religious pluralism is that all religions lead to the same God into heaven. And I'll tell you this, that any church that denies its calling to proclaim salvation in Christ alone is denying its primary God-given mission. So too many churches are settling for this kind of friendliness in which all absolutes perish, either for lack of interest or because of the demands of social etiquette. We need to ask God for the courage to proclaim his truth boldly. If you're a Christian and you're like this, 
I'm telling you, you have to ask God for the courage to proclaim his word without reservation. Scott McKnight says this, It is like someone sitting down at a restaurant who becomes overwhelmed with the number of options in the menu. This society that we have, which is crippled with options. This Customer knows that no chef makes all things well, and finally, in frustration, shouts out to the waiter, What does your chef make best? So we need to announce the goodness of God and his revelation of Christ to those who are befuddled by the menu of pluralistic options available today. And last, we need to keep salvation the priority of the church. It's got to be central. I'm all about social justice. You guys have taught me that. Your generation so much better at it than my generation. Helping people who are in need. Saving little girls trapped in sexual trafficking making sure that our food is free of hormones and genetically modified plants that don't do us or our children any good, or feeding the homeless, or clothing the naked, or going to prisons, or any number of social justice issues that you guys have picked up and are really, really good at, I wholeheartedly applaud you. But I'm going to say that the Jesus generation had one thing right, and that is the centrality of Jesus. It's like a bicycle wheel. You've got the hub. It's got to be salvation in Jesus. And all the spokes are all those things that we do that help people in the world, which is the rim on the outside. You take away that core, and spokes begin flying every place, and no one even knows what it's there for. I don't want scum of the earth to ever become like the YMCA. I mean, what does that C stand for anyway? Young Men's Christian Association? Young Women's Christian Association for the YWCA? What's Christian about the YWCA or YMCA? I have no idea anymore. I know there are some people who are trying to revive that, and I applaud them. Because otherwise, you're just some kind of cheap workout facility for people who can't afford to go to the real ones. After I'm done here, which is very, very soon, during the last worship set, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you haven't 
yet come to Jesus. There'll be some folks back there in the prayer room waiting to pray with you if you want to pray with them. If you've been giving Jesus the Heisman for years now, and you saying, okay, fine. Tackle me, Jesus. Drop kick me, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. <laughs> it's a real song. Did you guys know that? It's a real song. Drop kick me, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. Let me not go to the left or the right. Something like that. So if you've been given Jesus a stiff arm, tonight's the night to reclaim your salvation and come back to Jesus. This amazing salvation that prophets spoke of and that angels longed to look into. And if you are walking with Jesus just fine, but you, out of fear, have never been able to tell those you care about the most or those you work with or those with whom you go to school. Come on back. Get some prayer for courage to speak to things that aren't about you, but about their salvation, this amazing salvation. Put yourself in the line of the great prophets of old, and of Jesus Christ himself. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, an amazing, amazing salvation that you have procured for us by your life, death, and resurrection. I am so grateful, and I am so grateful that you have given us uh, this place and these people to whom to proclaim that on a regular basis. Draw us closer to you, Jesus. Draw us closer to you. Put us in the line of the prophets of old. Let us give the angels something to talk about. In your name we pray. Amen.